This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. Uzbekistan's been hot for a while, and they were just revving up to have their first international investment conference when the coronavirus hit. The country's come through the infections with relatively little damage as they clamped down early. Now we're coming out the other side, it's back to work, and investors are eyeing the country with curiosity. I spoke with Kian Zandier and Alex Branton, who are investment officers at Sturgeon Capital. Sturgeon's been in the region forever and have set up the first London-listed private equity fund, giving exposure to the country about what's going on and what to expect next. Hi, so I'm here today with Kian and Alex from Sturgeon Capital. They've been investing in Central Asia forever. Um, and we're going to have an update on what's going on in Uzbekistan. This is one of the the um, asset classes that they've been pushing and they think that like a lot of people that it's at a historic turning point and that there's a lot of opportunities as one of the last bigger untouched emerging markets or probably frontier markets left out there. So Kian, why didn't you kick off? You, you say you were down there. I mean, can you bring us up to date with what's going on with the coronavirus down there? They've been pretty quick, I think, to put lockdown and they were very worried about it. But what they've done seems to be relatively effective. Sure. So um, the last time I was there was with my colleague in, let's say, mid-February, uh, when when really Corona was starting to become um, across borders of China and becoming, you were seeing cases in various countries. And at the time, uh, anecdotally, when we were getting off the plane, every single person was being uh, temperature scanned. Um, and shortly after that, basically a week after that, they uh, implemented full lockdown. So in a way, borders were closed. Uh, everyone, to an extent, had to stay home. Um, and the irony was, when we flew back to the UK, uh, when we went through the airport, it was as if nothing was happening. Right. <laughs> so they were pretty early in, in in getting trying to get in front of it and stringent in in doing so. Right. Um, and they they realized. I mean, have they managed to control the epidemic there? Well, to the extent that if you look at the official numbers, which I'll just draw up now, um, you can see that. The, that it's pretty, it's pretty um, low. So you would argue that they've they've done quite a good job of of, of getting in front of it. I think in total they have about five thousand cases and they had uh, fifty deaths. Right, and basically ten deaths as at the end of April. Yeah. And we should point out this is by far the most populous country in Central yeah, Asia. Yeah, thirty-three million population, doubly landlocked, um, so it has a lot of borders. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the economic response, um, happily, I think well. Uzbekistan is actually well endowed with financial yep. resources. So they've built up a huge currency, hard currency reserve, a large part of which is gold, which Correct. is out of the ground. It's counter-cyclical. Yeah, so that they're in a good place. But nevertheless, um, Miyazov uh, asked the government to raise, what was it, a billion dollars in foreign bonds? They went to the yeah, IMF. So they've tapped, into the, they've tapped into the development banks and IMF, ADB, to, to get... Um, uh, let's say security financing in case they need it. Um, and you're right. So, so reserves of GDP are about 30%. Um, likewise, debt to GDP is already quite low, and um, uh, external debt that they have is is also extremely low. I mean, they had their first eurobond issuance in February 2019, 
Um, so on an absolute and relative basis, the external debt that they have is, is much lower than some other countries within the region. So low debt, lots of cash. And the, the banking system is in a solid shape? So the banking system at the moment, uh, there is no data to be seen. The reason being that they ask banks to give um, um, a, a grace period for, for companies not to have to pay interest. Mm. So basically, probably towards the end of Q2, you'll start seeing data uh, coming into the banks on, on non-performing loans. Um, the, the, the biggest hit actually is from remittances. Right. So about 15% of GDP is from remittances, the bulk of which comes from Russia. Um, and our expectation, and I think general consensus, is that that, that, that will be down 25 to 30%. Right. Um, so to put it into numbers, the, the predicted GDP growth was around 6%. Uh, and now consensus is between 15 to 2%. Um, so a significant contraction, but that it wouldn't, we, won't, we won't be going into a recession. I mean, right. that's, that's pretty so that makes it already quite an exceptional case. I mean, they're still going to put in growth. Yes, considering even beforehand you had a limited foreign capital, you're already coming from a low base. I mean, just to put it into a, a relative picture, like you said, you hear you're talking about a, a country of 33 million population, but GDP per capita, with all the resources that they have, is about $1,500. Mm. Now, you compare that with Georgia, let's say, with one-fifth of the population of no natural resources, there are 5,000. Kazakhstan with, let's say, half the population, but much more natural resources, there are 8,000. So you're already coming from a very low base, which in our mind, we define as giving you a large margin of safety. And this, this, this event has, 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 has um, shown that. Couldn't you also say that, I mean, another advantage, it was good too. I mean, having been a pariah state under Karimov for so long, yeah. that because it's not integrated with the rest of the world, so Correct. part of that process, that actually that, lack of integration, access yeah. insulation, and has yeah. made the country tougher or more resilient to the, the external economic shocks because it just simply wasn't hooked into the system before. That's correct. I mean, if you look at the, the largest trade partner, it's, it's ironically Switzerland, and that's because of gold exports that they send there to refine. Right? Right. Now, after that, obviously, China is a, is a, is a big trading partner, and that will, that will be it. But in the short term, we're already seeing kind of China recover. But you're right. Let's say if you look at uh, Imagine Frontier, the countries that are in, in most trouble are the ones that have dollar funding. Mm. And the, 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 a lot of discussion has been had about that. But as I said, um, it, the, the external debt uh, that the, the country has is, is both on an absolute and relative basis uh, minimal. Isn't another one of its disadvantages turning into an advantage in so much as of all the stands um, that it's one that doesn't have these natural resources, oil, gas? Sure. And consequently, and, and this large population, which gives it a consumer yeah. base, which again tends to insulate or isolate countries because they can turn to their own economies sure. in order to make money. Um, yeah. And that the result of that is that Uzbekistan has always had a much more diversified economy. I mean, when they, yes. when they drew the map, I think the Uzbeks got all the best land. I mean, they, they the, the Fagana Valley and, and yeah. um And of course, there's big deserts in the middle. But... Yeah. Um, the bits uh, where the people are living are actually quite yep. fertile, you know, famous silver. Yep. But then this led to, you know, obviously cotton was the basis of the Soviet economy, but they have food processing, they have yep. manufacturing, they have a yep. consumer uh, economy, so you have all those products. Uh, and that too, is, isn't that made the, the country more resilient? They're not going to have problems with unemployment or things like that, are they? Um, no, so the way, the way we think about it is... Um, as you said, they have a 
let's say diverse resource base. So one of the benefits uh, is that it doesn't have oil, so you don't have as much volatility as let's say the other stands do. Both on it, it is self-sufficient in oil, isn't it? More or less. Uh, it's a, it is a net importer uh, as net far as I'm. But they're big producers in gas. They don't have uh, uh, one part of the economy which makes up more than twenty five percent of GDP. Oh. Agriculture is a is a large part, and general industry is is a large part. But what they've been trying to do is. Um, if you look at the resources that they were producing, you could argue that they were under capacity a lot. So they were trying to reach full capacity, which if you think of it from a company perspective, is the equivalent of uh, increasing a top line or revenue. And what they were doing in a lot of areas, uh, if we take agriculture as an example, was move up the value chain. So whereas before they were producing raw cotton, they wanted to move up uh, the value chain and not just produce the raw material, but um, either have branded products or the same in agriculture, for example, they were producing, uh, they're one of the biggest producers of capers. What they would do is they would produce capers, send it to Turkey, Turkey they would brand it and then sell it to the US. And the margin differential they were missing out on was huge. Uh, and now you're seeing efforts to move into branded products. And if you put the two together, it's effectively a country akin to a company that is trying to increase their top line, but also the margins through moving up mm-hmm. the, the value chain. And again, coming back to the concept of because they were operating from such a low base, um, the level that you could fall or contract is limited relative to other countries. Mm. So to drill into that in a bit more detail, that um, there's a whole number of reforms, but the one that caught my eye, I mean, when I was there in the 90s, that cotton was everything, yep. it's even in yep. the national emblem. Um, however, the government's proposing to ban the export of raw cotton entirely, mm-hmm. which spends mm-hmm. billions of dollars a year. And effectively force everybody to go into value added and textiles, mm-hmm. uh, finished cloth. And when I was last down there in September, um, I was told lots of the big international chains like H&M mm-hmm. were in town and looking to source T-shirts, jeans, denim mm-hmm. from Uzbekistan, which has been untouched. And they also had this problem with the, the ban um, yes. related to the child labor problem. Yeah, and I think that has been rescinded now, hasn't it? Which that has been rescinded. So the, I mean, that was the most, um, let's say, one of the most contentious parts of the previous administration. Yeah. Uh, and this administration has been quite um, firm and stringent in uh, addressing that, uh, in the sense that the last external review that was done, I think they completely um, reformed that issue of, let's say, um, child labour within the, the, the cotton fields. Uh, and there was previously sanctions even in place against Uzbekistan related to that. No sanctions have been lifted. But there's no deals yet. There's no like you know H and M or CNA. There are not. What I what I believe is is happening is that the um, external parties want to see that these um, reforms that they've made within the, the concept will, will stay there for a period of time to then allow for them to um, become part of the international value chain for cotton textiles. Yes, so there is actually a coalition of human rights groups, and it's called the Cotton Campaign, mm-hmm. that are sort of dictating the policy as to whether foreign companies should source um, cotton from Uzbekistan. And they're still saying no, really, until there's complete, they deem there to be a sustained, a complete eradication of child labor in particular. So they want to go beyond the words and actually see the proof of the pudding uh, yes. and have a harvest which is clearly been done on whatever commercial terms with with labour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that, at the same time, I also heard that there's a lot of Chinese companies in particular um, and money pouring into textile mills. I mean, everybody's basically assumed that this ban on raw cotton is going to go ahead and that you have mm-hmm. to get into textile. And moreover, it's good business. 
Mm -hmm. Particularly now that the cotton ban is going to disappear, so you can mm -hmm. import. But isn't that one of the more exciting sectors in the country? Is uh, the whole textile mills, fashion production of clothes, etc. That is yeah, that is correct. Um, so, so to the China point, um, it's important to know that Uzbekistan falls um, firmly within the One Belt One Road program. Mm. Um, where there's a lot of um, either confusion or criticism from, let's say, the developed world, but effectively we think of it as a Marshall Plan to the power of free. Um, you have talking about a trillion dollar investment program. And then the question of what it actually benefits the country, on our view, um, it, uh, the primarily capital is going into infrastructure. And what that infrastructure does is it eases, eases the country's ability to do business with the world, whether it be through, through, through um, railways or through you know, infrastructure investments or investments within the, within the textile uh, industry. And we've seen the Chinese be very, be very active in um, so it's effectively putting, uh, it's effectively taking, if, if Amazon was a corner shop, sorry, if uh, Uzbekistan was a corner shop, it's putting it on a platform akin to, let's say, Amazon to deal to now trade its products with the world in an easier manner. That's how we see and define the, um, the, the, the one belt, one road. And, um, and, go on, sorry. Go on, I was going to change subjects and, and, and say, look, you know, the, another one of the big and early reforms has been to the banking sector. Correct. The government has always been terrified of um, having the banking sector taken over by the Russians. I mean, mm -hmm. one big Russian bank could come in and effectively buy the entire sector. Mm -hmm. And they want to keep some sort of you know, autonomy there. Um, and so there's been these restrictions on foreigners owning bank shares, but that's now starting to be eased. And I think last week we actually saw our first fully-fledged investment bank, um, a small bank from Switzerland, got um, a license to operate. Um, and there have been, I think, um, a Korean bank and a Turkish bank um, have been... And Georgia, TBC, TBC got the license. And TBC more recently, yeah, which is looking at the retail space. Um, yeah. yeah, and that makes sense too. I mean, it's the biggest bank in Georgia, but, you know, we talked to them and they said, look, we, the number of people in Uzbekistan signed up to this uh, fintech thing that we bought uh, as a way of getting in. Mm -hmm. Um, that's more people in the, than in the entire Caucasus. Uh, because yeah. that. So it makes total sense for them to expand. But for the Uzbeks too, it's like a, a nice London-listed EBRD bank, yep. competent bank with yep. the uh, resources behind it that that entails, um, coming in to develop the sector, um, but not a big political sort of old like Russia. Correct. So all of these reforms are going ahead. I mean, what stage is it at? Because typically when countries open up, the banking sector is the first to boom and it's the easiest way of getting exposure to Correct. the consumers as well. Correct. So, so for us, the banking sector or the financial sector as a whole is, is very interesting. I mean, to put it into data terms, you're talking about a country where 50% um, um, of the population simply do not have a bank account. Mm. Right? Um, which by law, now that, that has been changed in the sense that if you want to receive your wages... Um, you can no longer receive it in cash, but it has to be for a bank account. Why? Because with that 50% of the unbanked population, you had a high um, level of uh, tax revenues, which won't, which is not being collected. Right? Um, in parallel to that, you also have about 5% of the population that has ever taken a loan from financial institutions. Right? So you're talking about a really underbanked country. Again, for a population of 33 million, 65% of which are, are under the age of 35, uh, that's a huge um, opportunity. Now, what, if you look at the banking sector as, as it is today, you have eight, about 80% of the banking sector, which are effectively state or semi-state banks. 
um, which more or less act as, uh, let's say, fiscal policy tools, like it's to, to an extent subsidized lending to uh, state or semi-state um, businesses. And so for, for us, we believe the, the retail uh, and SMEs side of the, um, the economy to be the most interesting in terms of finance. So if we look at many SMEs, the access to finance is extremely limited. Mm. Um, in many cases, they're taking effectively wholesale funding from their suppliers at a very high rate. Similar with consumers, there's just not an effective way for them to access um, financing. Um, and so we, we see multiple ways of trying to go about this um, um, addressing this opportunity set that there is. And like you said, you've seen a number of banks from the region uh, get their licenses. Um, and I think the, the chance that they'll do, they'll do well is, is, is very high. You have, you're looking at some of the highest net interest margins in the world. And these banks are listed, aren't they, on the Tashkent Exchange? That's so, correct. So by law, uh, if a bank has to be listed on the so they're investable in that sense. I mean, I know that capital, I mean, they, they've been buying stocks and moreover, they try to repatriate some pro um, profits and manage to do it without any problems. So mm -hmm. they, they, so the whole system works with... Uh, yeah. so the whole system works, yes, in terms of getting capital in. I mean, that was for us what we define as the fall of the Berlin Wall moment and really making Uzbekistan investable. And we've been investing there for eight years, but on a, on a small nominal level, and the real issue behind not being able to invest more was the capital control. So it was very difficult to get capital up. Yeah. Um, when they had the currency unification, effectively took a 50% hit on the currency in one day, uh, that made it possible for investors to get capital in and capital out with, with relative ease. And you're focused on what, private equity or publicly traded or a mix of both? So frankly for us, um, the, uh, there are two aspects. Um, the public equity market as it is, is... Uh, very difficult to mean, uh, allocate meaningful capital. So we were talking about, let's say, uh, 50 to 100,000 uh, average daily trading volume at best. Right? Um, and our view is um, the majority of the companies on the on the market are, let's say, again, state to semi-state. Whilst they're going through a reform plan to increase uh, private IPOs on, on, on the market, as it stands today, as an investor in those companies, effectively, the, the thesis would be that you're you're to an extent front-running the hope of foreign flows. Mm. Right? Um, and for us, that, that's difficult to control performance, um, and it's the hope of something which, again, we cannot control. Mm. Whereas if we flip it on the private equity side, we have zero competition in the sense that the fund that we launched, which is dedicated to Uzbekistan, is, as far as I'm aware, the only international private equity fund investing in the country. We have an abundance of deal flow. The country is full of entrepreneurs that have been doing quite well under these times and would need capital. Um, and you're looking at um, management teams, which are arguably of very good quality, which you wouldn't otherwise be able to find on the market. And you're investing in valuations, which are as, as good as what you would find on the market. Um, and you're, you're getting involved in a situation where you have much more control of the variables that are important as opposed to the public. And your return is in the form of dividends, or are you just uh, building value and looking for an eventual exit? Um, it, well, predominantly the latter, in the sense that we're looking to build value and, and exit. Yeah. Uh, now, there are certain situations where, for example, you have, in, in the agriculture space, which we talked about, um, you have, Uzbekistan has a key comparative advantage. One is the cost of production of these agricultural goods are extremely low. Uh, and the quality is extremely high. So if you've been to Uzbekistan, for example, you, you eat the vegetables, they're Fantastic. arguably the best quality you've ever had. Anyway. And you have companies which are effectively trading companies and they export everything that they produce. So you have hard currency earnings, 
And in a scenario where the country was to go for, let's say, currency devaluation, it actually plays in your favor in the sense that your margins expand, your local currency costs are going to go. And there is no real residual value to the business because you don't have any core operations. You're simply a trading hub. And for them to access working capital financing is very expensive. So there you can provide financing where effectively you split the profits from the export trade. And that effectively is a dividend, let's say, um, play in the sense that whatever money they make every year, they pay it out in cash. Um, and the, where we, where, what we see there is effectively the returns of capital are around 50%. Uh, which is... Great. And the corporate um, governance, I mean, you know, it's not really sort of famous for its legal system. and all That's correct. So so the, the way we go about that is, um, we, so what we did in Uzbekistan when we decided upon launching Funder was to was to hire a local team. So the, And that's headed by um, a, a gentleman called Ali John. And he, he arguably, in our eyes, is probably the person with the most private equity experience in the country. He was the CEO of uh, Uzaman Capital, which, was, which, which today still is. Um, um, a joint sovereign fund between Oman and Uzbekistan. Uh, it was funded by two, with $200 million, uh, investing purely in private equity in the country. Ali John joined us um, uh, just over a year ago. And the way we address the corporate governance is one, we do extreme, in our view, uh, due diligence on the management team, the stakeholder map of the com- companies that we're investing. But in all cases, we insist on, on at least one board seat, um, the right to appoint a CFO, uh, and the right to veto uh, major capital allocations, mm-hmm. which normally is where you would see weak corporate governance really play out in terms of negative consequences for the company. Mm-hmm. In our view, we have we have um, uh, to, to an extent control of the, over those decisions. And, and, and the government has it done anything um, in order to protect investors? <clears throat> I mean, the Georgians were very active in that, and when shooting up the the World Bank doing business. By putting in very sort of proactive transparency laws, reporting laws, um, legal guarantees so that if there was disputes that you could go to the court. And and Russia too, actually, um, although it's not famous for its corporate governance, the arbitration court uh, in Russia has been very effective and people take it seriously. Contracts mean something now in a way that they didn't used to. Isn't it still extremely early days in, in Uzbekistan? Yeah, so we, we don't have too large a sample of, um, let's say, cases where one could draw a conclusion as to how the judiciary is being. There's, there's one that I was aware of last year where, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was Coca-Cola that brought the case locally for, for copyright. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually Coca-Cola International won against a local company. But again, that's a sample size of one and not too instructive of how the channel trends. Um, now, what I do know is, if I mean, one important thing is, if you look at the, the roster of ministers in the country, as opposed to the previous administration, it's filled with what I would call true technocrats. So these are Uzbeks where they've, they've studied abroad, they've had uh, good jobs, and they've come back, uh, they've been attracted to come back to, to um, uh, take on administ- uh, ministerial positions. Mm. And what is interesting at the same time is um, they increase the wages of, of, of government employees nearly tenfold. One, again, as an incentive to root out inflation. But the, the metric of which they judge themselves upon, similar to what the Georgians did in the early reform period, are international indicators, whether it be ease of doing business, uh, openness, and all of that sort of stuff. Now, you could argue that these indicators are not the best judge, but that they are the only external indicators which are the ranking is not um, put together by Uzbekistan itself that can determine as a, as a, as a yardstick how the country is performing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those um, metrics, the country is doing very well. 
Um, and the government and the ministers uh, on an individual and absolute basis are, are kind of working very hard to, 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 to meet those goals. And well, they're working extremely hard. When I, again, when I was down there, everyone was very encouraged and they said that the, the president's being incredibly proactive. Correct. And the, the regional guys uh, were complaining. They're saying that we're getting 300 <laughs> emails a week from the president's office saying, do this, do that. Um, mm. But we only managed to get about six of them done. And mm. the limit at the moment on the pace of reform is the bandwidth. Mm. There's simply not mm. enough people in the administration in order to put all the reforms that they would like to put in place in place. Sure. Um, do, do you think that's going to, I mean, that's the, the drag on reform. And it's also the lack of people experience, you know, of and what have you. But um, they're working very hard. So, but it's, Again, if you look at the investors, I talk to them and they're like, yeah, this is all extremely interesting, but mm. we're going to wait. You know, they've got so much to do. We're going to yeah. wait until it gets a bit further down the road before we commit. Isn't hey. that your experience with your potential investors? Um, well, look, so we have to come from, from if you're talking to a typical um, international investor, there are, there are two angles which we, which we see. One is that... Um, the average investor, let's say you're talking to a U.S. investor, um, simply has never really come across Uzbekistan in their life, right? So as attractive as it may be, there is a whole introductional process to educational process to explain what this country is, what context one should think about it, mm-hmm. and then provide further context in terms of the economic reforms that take place. The second aspect is, I mean, especially in the past 10 years, you've had many uh, countries within the defined within the frontier space, that there have been stories and narratives of promise and you know, things to do well. And frankly, investor performance hasn't um, uh, matched that. So you have the cynicism of frontier in general, and Uzbekistan not being the most known country. Yeah. Um, and that is what the job of us as an investment manager attracting capital to funds is to do. Um, Uzbekistan is relative to other countries that we've looked at has been. Um, and Alex can speak to this more, easier to, to raise capital for mm. um, because you have all these dynamics and particularly it's coming from such a low base. I mean, in our view and the way we describe it, not much has to go right for the country to do well, mm. right? So let's, going back to the reform point, you have an optimal level of pace of reforms in terms of them being executed. But let's say that they achieve only 50% of that. That's, in our view, still good enough for you to do well within yeah. the country, right? A last topic, because I wanted to run out of time completely. Um, there are a few big, sexy companies. Um, and the government has, for example, brought in Alisher Usmanov, who is mm-hmm. a big Russian, Uzbek-born uh, oligarch, mm-hmm. who famously bought 8% of Facebook ahead of the IPO and made billions yep. of dollars and also set up uh, Metal Invest in Russia. And yep. He's also big into tech. I mean, he is actually very competent. Uh, um, and distantly related to the president through his wife. Um, but he's been asked to come and restructure these companies, basically to get them ready for potential IPO in two years' time, mm-hmm. which also points to the whole issue of privatization, that uh, the Uzbeks, I think, are going to take a leaf out of the Russian model and they're going to sell off some equity stakes, um, maybe take something like Navoe, which is such a huge... Yep. Thing, that um, they'll retain control of it, but certainly there's going to be an opportunity but I mean, isn't this going to be the? Because um, all of these countries, even Mongolia, they have a few mm. big, sexy, usually raw material producers. 
Uh, and that whole privatization process, the restructuring process, um, mm. and also given the problem of lack of bandwidth, you know, what's your take on that? I mean, are there, is there going to be a big privatization campaign? Sometime? Well, there's certainly, there's certainly, um, they're planning on doing so. So the, I, if I believe they published a list a few weeks ago about 1,200 companies which are looking to privatize, either in full or in part. Mm. Um, and again, the, the whole process of that is, again, going to investors and explaining what sort of assets there are, what sort of terms are being privatized. I mean, our view is not that we believe they are not good opportunities, but it's not what we're looking at at all. Mm. So, so the problem that we, we that we see from our perspective, I'm sure there are investors that can do very well with that, um, is is you're taking a company which has a legacy, let's say culture, a legacy way of doing things, arguably um, uh, an inflated workforce, and as a as a new investor in the country that wants to be there for the long term, it wouldn't particularly be great for our reputation. Let's say if we had to to bring efficiency to half or make the workforce one third. Mm-hmm. The real opportunity that we see is um, what you've had over the past five years, which frontier markets didn't really have before, was um, an emergence of the basic infrastructure allowed for technology. Right. So smartphone adaptation is is above fifty percent, nearly sixty percent in the country. We have a young population; everyone is using a smartphone, and arguably is is one of the most important assets that someone has in the country. Mm. What you also have is a dynamic where there are no, let's say, venture investors. In the country at all, you have zero competition in terms of capital. Mm. Um, you know what business models generally work. That is, have normalized unit economics that are positive, and the ones which are scalable. So our strategy is, and you've seen, and it, we, you can take this even to the b- banking sector, where uh, let's if you compare a fintech company, let's say in UK, let's take Monzo, uh, and Russia or Kazakhstan, let's take Tinkoff or Caspi. You take the base case that there is a population that have never had a bank account and you compare that with the West where everyone has, let's say, HSBC, Citibank or whatever. Mm. And if you're providing a fintech solution in the West, it's in addition to what you have as your core default. Mm. And in these countries, you're going from no one has an account to now they can directly leapfrog and go towards the most optimal solution. Well, that was CBC's strategy, wasn't it? Exactly. And it worked. Mm. And it worked. So you have many other aspects where we believe where we believe it can do well. So we're talking about we're, we're invested, for example, in what is today the largest cross-border e-commerce business uh, within the region and Uzbekistan is the largest constituent country. Um, this is this is a company that's growing about thirty-eight percent um, a month. It has basically virtually no competition, and this Corona has done nothing but accelerate the transition of individuals that previously had no experience shopping online to now by default having to only be able to shop online. So if you want to think in terms of customer acquisition costs, let's say it was $10 per customer you had to spend on marketing, today it's zero. Right. And these are sticky customers. But if you, you said several times you have no competition, you're the only ones there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bit of a turkey shoot when it comes to finding investment projects. Mm-hmm. But then that also means there's a problem with the exits because there's no one to sell to. It is only you. Sure. So, I mean, where, where do you see the um, the exit? I mean, is because well, it's mm-hmm. locals plus uh, strategic internationals. Sure. And I think you could inv- you could interest the strategic internationals because of the population. I mean, you scoop mm-hmm. up the whole of Central Asia. If you go yeah. to Tashkent, that was always the argument of going to yeah. Tashkent. Um, but then locals, there's not that many, and no. maybe the Chinese uh, would be interested. I don't know where, where were you going to. So, so for example, uh, so there are a lot of let's say Russian. You already have a few Russian um, 
tech companies that are that are active in the country. So, for example, you have Russian software companies that are selling enterprise software in the country. Mm. Um, and you have, we, we've seen a few Chinese um, uh, players. in the, So, for example, you have AliExpress in the country, but I say they're not the most active. Um, but it is true at the same time that you have this dynamic of kind of a lot, the large population in the region of all this kind of untapped consumer market. And our view is, is two things. One is that um, that whatever business that we're investing in, for it to be the leading within the country, um, we are not looking to um, operate in such a manner that we're racking up losses on the underlying operating companies such that we would need to exit. That is, it is important for us within, as quick as possible that the companies get to uh, positive cash flow. And um, the benefit of Uzbekistan is the cost of getting there is, is a fraction compared to other countries. Mm. Um, and then you have one, one which is a higher probability dynamic in the sense that we believe, uh, let's say the likes of Yamnex, let's say the likes of Alibaba, or these large tech players where um, they're very active in M&A to the extent that Alibaba, one third of their income is investment income from their M&A, from their venture portfolio, yeah. that they would be interested in a country like this. And in, in the lower probability scenario that whilst the country is going from an aggressive, trying to be as aggressive as possible in reforming the local stock market, that should it be at such a stage within five, seven years that it is reasonably developed enough, that these would be the prime companies that one would want to list within the country, both from the government perspective and from the individual perspective, to, 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 to for, the, for, the, for the average investor in the country to get access to. Last, last word, um, and just a few words. So can you tell me a little bit about your funds? You've got a private equity funds, um, one That's that correct. you raised money for, or you have a second one coming, or... So, so we launched uh, the fund in terms of the, the first close. Uh, to put it, was was done in the beginning of March, um, and we've already we've already made free investments. The fund will remain open for another sixteen months, at which it will have its hard close, um, and the life of the fund is is five years, and we can extend it by two. So, at most, the fund will be invested um, for seven years, at which point we have to exit. Um, and your AUM. Uh, within the fund, it's our total that we're targeting is $35 million, and we've raised about half of it. Right, right. <laughs> Guys, I wish you all the success. It uh, remains an extremely interesting story, and everyone who goes to Uzbekistan uh, enjoys it. It's a special place. So, um, yeah. good luck. Good, thanks for talking. Thank you, Ben. And if you're looking to come out there when things are normalized, let us know. Because, uh, uh, absolutely to looking to go again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben.